good morning, New Life Church. Good to be with you again this morning and to be worshiping with you together. Uh, we've had a wonderful week getting to know many of you. Thank you for your kindness and your hospitality. It's really been a blessing. But today we want to worship together through the Word of God. So if you have your Bible, if you would turn to Psalm 87 this morning. Psalm 87. And while you're turning there, let me just give you a short introduction. Starting with a quote that I read from a book called Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. Maybe you're familiar with it. I still remember the day that I read this book. I still remember where I was. And I remember being amazed at my small view of who God was and how these words seemed to just open my eyes to the reality of how, how great God really is and, of course, His purposes. But here's the quote from the book, John Piper's, John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad. He said, If you say that you love the glory of God, the test of your authenticity is whether you love the spread of that glory among the peoples of the world. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions is, exist because worship doesn't. God's passion is to be known and honored and worshiped among all the peoples. To worship Him is to share that passion for His supremacy among the nations. I encourage you to read that book if you haven't already. But that really did open my eyes to understand the supremacy of Christ's name among all the peoples of this earth, not just, not just in my little suburb, not just in my little church where, where I was worshiping. And I believe this psalm this morning attempts to do that very thing, open our eyes to the supremacy of God among the nations. Of all the psalms in the Bible, 11 of them are attributed to the sons of Korah. And this is a psalm written by the sons of Korah. Now, the Korahites were, were doorkeepers. They were custodians for the, the temple. And the most remarkable thing to note about the sons of Korah is during the time of David, they became great leaders in the music team, in the, the choral and the, the orchestral music in the tabernacle. And these beautiful psalms express a spirit of, of gratitude. They express a spirit of humility to an awesome God, a supreme God, a mighty God. And this psalm here, 87, predicts the conversion of all nations to Christ under this beautiful picture, this beautiful illustration of their birth in Zion. And we'll see that word come up over and over again. And the writer is here celebrating the glory of the church as the means of spiritual blessing to the nations exclusively from Jerusalem. So Zion is a picture, as I mentioned. It is a type of the, the gospel church. And this psalm reminds us that Zion, that city of God, where the people of God are, will be made up of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, not just the Israelites. It reminds us of how glorious the church is in God's eyes and why. So let's read Psalm 87 this morning, in verse 1, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. You may be familiar with John Newton's hymn from this very verse. Verse 4, among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre. With Cush, this one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the peoples. This one was born there, Selah. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Father, this morning we ask for the help of your spirit for understanding. You have promised, Lord, that if we lack wisdom and we ask, you will give it to us. We thank you for your spirit who leads us into the word, who teaches us. 
So we pray, Lord, please, would your spirit help us understand the importance of these words here this morning. Help us, Lord, to grasp your supremacy, Father. Help us to grasp your awesome, mighty love for different peoples of this world. Lord, we do want to be part of your of your mission that you have given to the church. We want to be a church that are faithfully proclaiming your excellencies among the nations. So, Lord, we pray today. Thank you that we can come together as a body of believers. Thank you for the songs that we sang of worship to you this morning. And I sense a spirit of worship here today, Father. May you be exalted here amongst us, Lord. So we pray, open our eyes, Lord, to your word, to yourself, Open our ears to the Spirit who would speak to us and into our hearts and into our minds and conform us to the image of your dear Son today. Help us to love Him more. Help us to love the purpose for which we have been made. Help us, Lord, to be faithful followers of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ this morning. So again, Lord, we pray, help us not just to be the the hearers, but to be the doers of your word we ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me give you some context, some background to this psalm before we take some application from it. Zion, of course, is the mountain upon which the temple is built. And the temple in Jerusalem was always designed to be the main place of Jewish worship. In the New Testament, Jesus himself gives us some insight into the very purpose of this temple worship. In Mark 11, you may be familiar with that passage where Jesus enters into the temple and he sees the people selling goods and he's enraged and he accuses these people of turning the house of God into a, into a den of thieves. And This was the place of worship, but they turned it into a commercial marketplace. And Jesus takes out his whip and in his righteous anger, he drives out the, the money changers but remember the words of Jesus when he, when he rebuked them. He said to them in Mark eleven seventeen. he said, Is it not written, my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And then in two other places, he said something about the temple that pointed to a, a radically different view of how we are to worship in the temple. He said in Matthew 12, verse 6, he said, I say unto you that one greater than the temple is here. Of course, he was referring to himself. And he said again in John 2 verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, of course, this attitude and even these words got Jesus killed. That's how important the temple was to the Jewish people. But Jesus identified himself as the true temple. He said, something greater than the temple is here. Talking about himself, Jesus would fulfill everything that the the temple stood for, especially the place. And that is why we don't need to go to Jerusalem today to worship at the, the temple. But for our purposes this morning, it's important for us to see that the temple was a was an integral part of the, the Jewish worship. It was an important part of Old Testament worship of Yahweh. And the temple was, past tense, the place where believers would meet God. I'm sure you've seen or perhaps you've even visited a mosque here in Abu Dhabi. But I know when we are in India and we visit a temple there, we have to take off our shoes um, to show respect as we walk on their holy ground. Well, that's that's the idea of the temple. And that's the idea that we have of the the specialness of the, the temple. Let me give you my outline this morning. From verse 1 to 3, we see the, the lovely gates principle. From verse 4 to 6, the reborn people's principle. And in verse 7, the joyous springs principle. I would encourage you to, to take notes as we, as we study this passage together. My first point this morning in verse 1 to 3, the lovely gates principle. And first and foremost, let me say... God delights in diversity of worship. And this is a song, this is a psalm all about this. This is depicted in the, in the city of God here in Zion, the city that he has founded. 
Um, it's a picture of the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And these verses really challenge us for the, to have an appreciation for the, the choosing love of God and, of course, to, to view God's people the same way that God views them. And it reminds us of God's plan. And we sang songs about it this morning. And we read scriptures about it this morning of how God wants to bring people from every tribe into this family. So we see there in verse 1, on the holy mount stands the city that he founded. So God has chosen to found his earthly temple upon this mountain. He may have selected other spots. Why this particular mountain? There's no real reason for it. This mountain wasn't holy in and of itself. It was God who had chosen this mountain to be holy. It pleased him to have this place where he would be worshipped. And that city is here on the Mount Zion. That city we know as Jerusalem. And the word Jerusalem simply means possession of peace. The word salam is there. The word peace is there. Or another interpretation, foundation of peace. And he chose, he elected this mountain to be holy. It was ordained by him. It was set apart for the Lord's special use. And Zion did not choose God. It was God who chose Zion. This is the foundation of the church, is it not? God choosing his people. It is laid, it is fixed, it is grounded in his eternal selection. And thank God for that. He wills that the church shall be. He wills and he settles all the arrangements for her, for her calling. He wills for her salvation. He wills and he settles her perfection and her sanctification. And thank the Lord for that. Let me draw your attention to verse 2. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Now that's interesting and confusing at first. But why? It begs the question, why? Of all the things that the Lord could love about his temple, about his city on Zion, the Bible says he loves the gates more. He doesn't love the walls more. He doesn't love the, the paths more. He doesn't love the altar more. He doesn't love the holy of holies more. He loves the gates. And why? That is the, that is the question here this morning. Well, gates were the place where all the worshippers of Yahweh would enter. It was the point of, of access, was it not? You couldn't jump over the walls to get into the temple. There wasn't a back door. You had to go through the gates of the temple. It was a point of access. And of course, we know from the New Testament that Jesus is this access. We cannot get to God but through Jesus Christ. Jesus said it himself in John 14, verse 6. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This point of access. We read in Revelation. Turn there with me if you would. I mean, we read it earlier this morning. But it's important that we see that. In Revelation 5, we see the, the angel asking, Who is worthy to open the seals? We see that in, in verse 2. And of all the people that are there, nobody is worthy. It says in, in verse 3. And John, the apostle who has this vision, this unique view of, of heaven, he starts to weep. There's no one worthy. But look at verse 5 in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. We read there, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom 
and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Because of Jesus, we have access to God. It is He and He alone who has ransomed people through His blood this morning, through the ages. And this is the lovely gates principle. He is the access point to Yahweh. There is nobody else that could grant us eternal life. There is nobody else that could grant us peace with God. It is through His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the one who has reconciled us to God the Father. And you can imagine here, I hope you can, try and imagine the Korahites, the sons of Korah. And remember, they are the custodians, they are the gatekeepers, watching over the people, watching as people from all over the world enter into these gates. And as they approach the temple, they have to enter through the watchful eye of these Korahites. And it must have filled these sons of Korah with, with joy to see these people, to see these pilgrims, to see these foreigners coming and worshiping God from all over the world. I hope it fills your hearts with joy this morning. It's a glorious thing to see people from all nations worshiping God. Look at Psalm 84. This is another psalm by the, the Korahites, another psalm which, which they sang. And in Psalm 84, you can sense their, their joy, you can sense their excitement. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, it faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. It fills my heart with joy to be part of this congregation this morning, singing the praises of God. And we did such a, such a good job this morning with that. But the psalmist is expressing this joy. We see this in the words that he, he uses. Look at verse 3 again. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. This was a wonderful place to be. It was a place where people would walk for miles and miles, for days and days, so that they can experience the Shekinah glory of God. It was where people of all nationalities would come together. And that was God's plan. That was God's design from the beginning of time, that people from all nations would worship Him. And God loves diversity of worship. Jesus said Himself, while He was, while he was moving those people out of the temple in Mark 11, the temple shall be called of all nations the house of prayer. It wasn't exclusively for the, the Jews. And again, Jesus said to, him, to his disciples in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. That was Jesus' last command. And it wasn't the first time he had said it to his disciples either. But it was so important, he wanted to emphasize it. He wanted them to remember that worship of him included all nations. And when the gospel has taken root among all the people groups of the world, and the church has been planted in all the people groups of the earth, and the elect have been gathered from all the tribes and, and tongues and nations, the Bible tells us that our Lord will return. And this is our Lord's mission. It's not a suggestion. It's a command that he has given us as his disciples. If we are faithful followers of Christ, this is our duty. We are to be part of this, this joyous service the Lord has given his church. There's a lot of emphasis nowadays that is put on the 1040 window. Perhaps you've heard of that phrase. That's a line of, of latitude and a line of longitude that, that represents a short, a small portion of the world really here across the, the Middle East. And we are right in the heart of the 1040 window here in, in Abu Dhabi. But they say that there is an estimated 4.6 billion 
people that live in this 1040 window. And they have very little access to the gospel. They have never heard about Christ. They have never heard about the sacrificial work of the cross of our Savior. And many don't even have the Bible in their own language. Carrie and I used to go to the hospital in Nasik and pray with some of the patients. And to our amazement, there were people who had never even heard the name of Jesus. We would pray for them and ask them if we could pray in the name of Jesus. And they would ask us, who is Jesus? Not that they, they don't know about Jesus. They've never heard the name of Jesus. Now in Russia, there are 142 million people, 165 people groups, 80 which are unreached. In China, 1.3 billion people, 517 people groups, 427 unreached. In Afghanistan, 33 million people, 77 people groups, 73 unreached. In India, 1.2 billion people, 2,600 people groups, 2,300 unreached. You just go and look at the Joshua Project on the internet and you can see that information there. It's, it's scary to see. It's an eye-opening thing to consider. There are people amongst us, close to us, that are unreached, that have never heard the name of Jesus. When Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28, He gave us a, a, a certain amount, a foundation of certainty. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This is the reason we can go out with confidence, folks. There's a, there's a certainty about this. This is why we go. This is why we make disciples. I was able to listen to Pastor Matthew's last sermon on, on the, the website this week that he preached here at New Life Church. And he, and he said something. He said how strategically placed the church in Abu Dhabi is. This church. And I think he's right. You know, we are living in the heart of this 1040 window. Is it a coincidence that the Lord has brought you here so that you can earn some money? I don't think so. I think not. The Lord has a greater purpose for us. The Lord said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. The foundation of certainty is there, folks. The victory belongs to our Lord. Nothing can stop Jesus Christ and the gospel. The church will prevail. We just need to be faithful with this commission that he has given to us. My second principle, my second point this morning is the the reborn people's principle. In verse 4 to 6 there, we see the city of God is not just a city filled with Jews. It's a city filled with the nations. And it's striking, isn't it? Look at verse 4. I shall mention Rahab. Now, Rahab was a way that the children of Israel often spoke about the Egyptians. So this is a poetical name for, for the Egyptians. And notice who's speaking here. Look at verse 4. I shall mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. This is capital me. Look at those pronouns. Who's speaking here? This is God. God is speaking here. God is saying that I'm going to number the Egyptians. I'm going to number the Babylonians, the people in Iraq. I'm going to number those among the children of God. And it doesn't stop there. Look there. He goes on to say, Philistia and Tyre and Ethiopia. All of these, he's going to say, belong in my book of life. And I'm going to register them at the last day. Is God saying that everybody is going to be saved? No. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is that his plan from eternity past is that there's going to be more than a meager number of Israelites that are going to be numbered in the book of life. It's not just the small group of Hebrews. There are going to be people from all the nations numbered in his book of life. 
He said to Abraham in Genesis 12, remember that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We need to be reminded that God had this plan right in the Old Testament. Sometimes we think missions is, is a New Testament project to keep the church busy. This is not God's plan. This is not God's design. It's right here, rooted in the Old Testament. And we ourselves can never fail to have a concern for the work of world missions because that's God's purpose. God's plan, God's design to bring these Egyptians, these Sidonians, these Babylonians and Ethiopians and Filipinos and Africans and Angolians and South Africans and Americans and Canadians and Australians. And I'm running out of nations here. And on and on and on. It is his purpose to bring them in and to number them and register them amongst the people of God. Caste, nationality is no issue to God. In fact, he delights in different races. He delights in different castes. He delights when people from different cultures worship him. In South Africa, we used to have this ideology called apartheid. But in the UK, they call it the class system. In India, they call it the caste system. In the US, they call it racism. But it's all prejudice at the end of the day, and it's sin. God is no respecter of any people. We read in Ezekiel 38, verse 23, that God's purposes were to make himself known in all the nations. He says, Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. It has always been God's purpose to make his name known among the nations. And the sons of Korah are emphasizing that for us. We who need to be reminded of that. We must be concerned for the glory of God, not just in our homes, as important as it is, not just in our church, as important as it is, but amongst all nations. Turn with me to, to Romans 15 quickly in the New Testament. In Romans 15 verse 8, Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Verse 10, and again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. And let all the peoples extol him. Notice there in verse 9, Paul says that the reason Christ came into the world was so that the nations might glorify God for his mercy. Isn't that wonderful? God gets the glory and we get the mercy. God is praised and, and we are delivered from death and sin. God gets the honor, we get the joy. God is glorified for his mercy. Fullness, and we are satisfied with his, with his mercy. I read a story about Mahatma Gandhi when he visited South Africa. He used to work there as a lawyer. And while he was there, he was invited to a church. He had already read the Gospels. He was given a Bible. And he was moved by the, the Sermon on the Mount. And it seemed to him Christianity offered a solution to the caste system that plagued India, that still plagues India today. So he went to a church to see this pastor and to ask this pastor for instruction regarding salvation. But when he entered the church, which consisted of white people, the ushers refused to give him a seat. And they told him to go and worship with his, his own people. And that's an indictment on that church, and that church will have to answer to God for that one day. But in heaven, there will be Indian worshiping God. There will be converted Muslims worshiping God. 
there will be people from all nations worshiping God. John Piper in that same book, Let the Nations Be Glad, says, In heaven, there will be no need for missions because everybody from all nations will be worshiping God. He said, Gathered around the throne will be worshipers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thus the goal of missions will have been accomplished. But he goes on to say, But until that is the case, true worshipers who have tasted the goodness of the Lord will not be content until they have invited the nations to join them in the feast. I want to challenge you this morning. Your maid that works for you, the gardener that works for you, who's from a different nation, invite them to join in this feast. Invite them to the church service. Look at verse 4. Back to Psalm 87. In verse 4, we see the word born. This one was born there. In verse 5, the the word born is used as well. And in verse 6. And that's talking about being born again in in Christ. Those who who have entered through the, the gate. Remember, the gate to worship of Yahweh is Jesus. So the context of the psalm is is stressing the blessing of being born in in Zion. No matter who we are, no matter what nationality we come from. When the gospel is preached and people are turning to faith in Christ, they are born in Zion. Look around you, New Life Church. How many of you have been born in Zion because of the ministry of this local church? Because of this faith community that has been preaching the gospel. The local church is a means of grace that God uses for the extension of his kingdom. And thank God for this community of faith that we are part of. For this means of grace that God has used in so many ways to make his glory known in in Abu Dhabi and in other parts of the world as people go back home. But if somebody comes to you and asks you if any miracles happen at New Life Church, I hope that you respond, yes, indeed, people are brought from death unto life. And there is no greater miracle than to be born in Jesus Christ, to be reborn, and no greater status than being born into the city of Zion. This is the glory of the church, no matter who we are. We have to enter through the beautiful gates. And in her, there is fullness of joy. The proud and the arrogant from Egypt, the worldly from from Babylon, the city of confusion, the wrathful from Philistia, so long the, the enemies of Israel, the covetous from Tyre, the rich city of the traders, and the slaves from Cush, And from the land of Ham, all these shall learn the love of Christ and confess him as God and shall enter into that glorious city. Turn again to Romans chapter 2. In Romans 2 verse 8, it says, But unto them that are factious and obey not the truth, But obey unrighteousness shall be wrath and indignation, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that worketh evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no respect of persons with God. Apostle Paul made it very clear here, didn't he? That both Jew and Gentile are equally guilty before God. Even though the Jews had this great advantage of having the law with them, they are equally condemned, just as the Gentiles. And at the basis on which they would be brought into this kingdom was not by their works, but by the grace of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's very important for us to realize that. 
We are not saved by works. Or we could boast, Paul says. We are saved by the grace of God. And the Jews misunderstood this. They misunderstood their privilege of being called the, the children of God. And this passage was for them just as it is for us today. God is going to bring the nations to himself in the most striking of ways, in the most strangest of ways, through the humiliation of his son, through the crucifixion of his beloved son, through the death and burial resurrection of his son. And that's what was needed to bring the nations to a saving knowledge of God. No other substitute, no other sacrifice would be sufficient but the sinless lamb who would be slain for the sins of the world. But we need to be careful. There's a warning here. Just like the, the Jews had to be reminded of this trap of worshiping our ethnicity. It's idolatry and that's basically what it comes down to. They were worshiping their own nationality, their own race. We need to be careful. The children of Israel were tempted to look at this and say, okay, well, if the nations need to come to Zion, then they need to become like us. They need to be us in order to enter into Jerusalem. And sometimes we're tempted to say, well, I've been a Christian for many, many years. My parents were Christians. My grandfather was a Christian. And we tend to look down upon those who have been saved in the first generation. We tend to think just like these Israelites that we deserve more privileges than, than those don't. And we tempted to close the gates. We tempted to close the gates to these outsiders who we think are not worthy. That's why we need the psalm. We need to be reminded of it. Back in Psalm 87, verse 5, it tells us that the highest himself shall establish her. The Lord alone will establish her. Not us, not our works, not our expertise, not our, not our strength, not our money. It is the Lord who will establish her. And through his sacrificial atonement, the Lord proves himself to be the builder and the sustainer of the, the church. He is the one who alone deserves the title of the defender of the faith. He is our sufficient patron and he's the protector of the, the true church. And that's why Jesus said, I will build my church. It wasn't a suggestion. The Lord is telling us a statement here. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As a youngster, I used to think that, that it was the church who had a gate around, around her. And that the demons and hell were trying to get into the church. It's not like that, folks. It is hell that has the gates around her. And it is heaven that is going to conquer hell and is going to conquer the demons. It is heaven that is going to break the oppressor. The church, the Lord, has a plan for his church. And nothing will prevail against it. There's wonderful pictures here that the Lord has given us, isn't it? Two gates. The gates of Zion and the gates of hell. And the Lord who is the builder and the Lord who is the sustainer of the church will be victorious. Nothing can stand against our Lord. Look at our last point this morning in verse 7. The joyous springs principle. In this verse, the psalmist sees the Citizens of Zion rejoicing at, at this festival, and there's a procession going on, and there's, there's instruments that are playing, and people are singing with their voices, and the city of God's people is made up of nations everywhere, full of joy, and the people of God glory in seeing the nations bow the knee to God. Look at another Psalm 67. This is another wonderful messianic psalm in psalm 67 talking about the glory of god in all the nations but look, listen for the word joy listen for the word praise in this song god be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us Selah. 
that thy way may be known upon earth, thy salvation among all nations. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For thou wilt judge the peoples with equity and govern the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. The earth has yielded its increase. God, even our own God, will bless us. God will bless us. And all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Where the Lord is, there is joy. There is freedom. The Lord has founded the church. He is our eternal source of joy. He is our eternal source of satisfaction. He is our eternal source of supply. And looking to Him, we will never fail. We will never go without. And how truly does all of our experience lead us to look to the Lord by faith and say, like the psalmist says here in Verse 7, all my fresh springs are in thee. Is that your experience this morning? The springs, listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, the springs of my faith and all my graces, the springs of my life and all my pleasures, the springs of my activity and all its right doings, the springs of my hope, and all its heavenly anticipations all lie in Thee, Lord. Without Thy Spirit, I should be as a dry well, a mocking cistern, destitute of power to bless myself or others. Is that true of you this morning? Where are you finding your joy? Where are you finding your satisfaction? You know, we, are, we are these conduit pipes, Christ is the fountain. He's the foundation of this, draw, of this joy where all this, these drops of, of comfort come from. And we are to spread His joy. We are to spread this blessing to the nations. Christ is the God of, of all true consolation. But let me ask you this morning, where do you find your joy from? Do you look for your joy in people? Do you look for joy in your husband, in your wife, in your children? Do you look to the world? Do you look to money? Do you look to sex? Where are you finding your joy this morning? The psalmist is finding his joy in Christ alone. Charles Spurgeon finds his joy in Christ alone. And the psalm speaks the words of comfort. And often we need these words and words sometimes can be empty, and the world gives us empty promises. But Christ is, a, is the well where we get the comfort from. John Piper said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Is that true of you this morning? Are you satisfied in Christ? Is He glorified in your life because you run to Him as your, your well? Eternal spring of joy. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, he said, The silver springs of grace and the golden springs of glory are in Him. These psalms and these songs and these quotes all revolve around the Lord Jesus Christ, our eternal source of joy. And again, it will finish with Jesus Christ. As we read in the book of Revelation, from the beginning of eternity to eternity end, our joy will be found in Jesus Christ. And remember in verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are thou to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for you were slain, and you did purchase unto God with thy blood men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We sing a new song, folks. Not an old song, not the same old boring song. We have a new song in Jesus Christ who has taken away our sins. We have a reason to sing because we are free from the chains of death. We have been brought into light out of the, the darkness of our sins and slavery. We have been rescued because of Jesus Christ. Let's praise Him. I started 
with a statement by John Piper. And let me conclude with that. If you say that you love the glory of God, the test of your authenticity is whether you love the spread of that glory among the peoples of the world. There's a story of David Livingston, who was a pioneer missionary to Africa, who loved the spread of God's glory among the peoples of the world and devoted his life to telling others about it. He was invited back after many years of serving in Africa to a a conference in his native Scotland. He was invited to address the students at Glasgow University. But as he stood there, he was a weak man. He was a frail man. Before all of these young and healthy students, they could see that he had paid a, a terrible price on the mission field. But he had more than 27 fevers that had ravished his, his body, that had left him gaunt, that had left him weak. And one of his arms hung, hung useless at his side as a result of being attacked by a, a lion. But the core of his message to these young people was simply this. Shall I tell you what sustained me amidst the toil, the hardship, and the loneliness of my exile? Remember, his wife died at a young, early on into their marriage. He said to them, it was Christ's promise. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end. Christ is with us here in Abu Dhabi, folks, even to the end. And how are we doing with this promise? And how is the church doing at large? How is New Life Church doing in this mission that God has given to us. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. Let me remind you of that. And if we are not interested in spreading his fame among the, the peoples of this world, then we are not really for God and his purposes, but we are acting against God and his purposes. C.J. Mahaney said once, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Let's assess ourselves this morning honestly in the light of God's holiness, in the light of God's supremacy that will be declared amongst all the nations, in the light of our holy, holy, holy God, and in the light of our sinfulness, where we have thought it is not fitting for me to share the gospel with somebody from a lower caste, a lower class. Josh Harris said once in his book, Dug Down Deep, if you lived in the days of Moses and wanted to know what God was like, you wouldn't find the answer in the temples of Egypt or in the sorceries of the Canaanites. The only way to glimpse the living God was to go to the desert to an unimpressive group of nomads called the Israelites. He says, this amazes me. An unseen eternal God chose to join himself to a ragged group of humans. It was through their worship and obedience to God's laws in their rituals and commitment to holiness that the character of God was displayed. The same thing could be said of the church today. Thousands of years later, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said. Sorry, the Apostle Peter said, isn't it? And he used the words, of Exodus to describe the New Testament church, isn't it? First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. He's speaking to us, church. He's speaking to us, these peculiar people. He's speaking to us, this chosen generation, that the world looks upon, that the world doesn't understand, to this unimpressive group who declare the excellencies of our Savior to a world dying in their sins. And the church is how God makes himself known in the world. We are this means of grace. 
The church makes the invisible kingdom of God visible. And we are, by faith, to proclaim the excellencies of Him to all nations without prejudice for His glory alone. For He is worthy. He has ransomed a people for God from every tribe and tongue and nation. Father, we thank you this morning for this wonderful reminder. We thank you, Lord, for these songs that were inspired by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for these sons of Korah who were watching these events take place as people from all over the world would come to Mount Zion to worship you. And the Holy Spirit provoke them to write these words to remind the Israelites the glory of God, but also to remind us of your supremacy among all the nations of this world. So Lord, we confess, Lord, our sins to you this morning. And if we are honest and we are assessing ourselves in the light of your holiness, there is some prejudice there in our heart somewhere, Lord. We pray that you would take that away this morning. Pray you help us, Lord, to protect what you are building here in Abu Dhabi. Help us, Lord, to take steps to protect the unity of this church. Help us, Lord, to, to be involved in serving you here in Abu Dhabi. Help us, Lord, to be your faithful servants making disciples of Jesus Christ to all nations. We thank you for this purpose that you've given to us. So Lord, we thank you that our, that our lives have meaning. We thank you, Lord, that we are not wandering blind on this earth in the darkness of this world. We have joy in Christ because he has taken away these chains of slavery, these chains of sin, and has defeated death. And we stand before you this morning amazed, Lord, at your greatness and thankful for your grace that has saved sinners like us. We pray this morning, Lord, that we would be faithful in declaring your excellencies among the peoples of this earth. Bless New Life Church in their attempts to do this, Lord, for the sake of your great name. And for the joy of your people, we pray this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.